0: Welcome to season five of the life giver podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope that will breathe life back into your military or first responder marriage. This is your host, Corey Weathers. I'm a military spouse, clinician and advocate, and I'm bringing topics that I hear from the service community and counseling room to the podcast where we can face the challenges of this lifestyle together. Welcome to the Life Giver podcast. This is your host, Corey. We are in season five, and I have a fascinating story to bring you guys this season. I have with me Derek Abbey from Project Recover. Um, they reached out to me with the opportunity to share their story and what they're doing as an amazing international nonprofit that is leading the way in finding um, the remains of fallen American troops across all of the wars. Well, not all of them, but <laughs> the most recent ones. Um, and repatriating them into back into our families, bringing closure, and just doing some really really cool stuff. But there's so much behind what they're doing, and Derek is going to share with us a little bit about what Project Recover is doing, but also how he found this nonprofit that has um, really just added even more fulfillment to his life. So, Derek, welcome to the podcast. Um, I know that you have served 23 years in the Marines. You have so much experience as a pilot. Um, doing some really cool things that I know that also fulfilled you back then. Um, so I think I'm just going to pause there and just say welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's, it's an absolute pleasure.
0: Yeah. Derek, you have an incredible background in the Marines. And so I think what I'd love to do is just start off with you sharing a little bit about your experience as a veteran yourself, um, maybe how you kind of got into the military in the first place. And um, there's no way to write, to to sum up 23 years of being in the Marines, but maybe just kind of share a little bit about what you did and what you enjoyed about what you did.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Happy to share that story. It's a it's a bit of a fairy tale uh, sometimes. I think, you know, when people, if they were to meet me at, at a drinking establishment and we had a couple of uh, beers or something like that, they might think that I had a little too much to drink because sometimes I feel like my, my service was so much of a fairy tale. I got to do so much. But it all started, if you will. I, I grew up in and around Seattle, Washington, uh, was raised by a single mom that, that didn't graduate high school. And when I was 13 years old, um, tragically, my mom passed away. Uh, from a brain aneurysm. She was literally there one day and then gone the next. And as you can imagine, um, 13 years old and that happens to you, your life gets turned upside down. And mine was, but, um, you know, I managed through it. I went and lived with my aunt and uncle for a while. And as I was approaching 18, I ultimately ran away to the Marine Corps. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I was without a rudder or sail, but I found exactly what a young 18-year-old without a rudder or sail needed in the Marine Corps. And that was a system of stability and a system that I could succeed in. And, and I did. And so I really started investing into becoming a Marine and what that and what that meant. And the more I invested in the system, the more the system returned its investment into me. And so initially, I was a communicator in the Marine Corps. But after my first enlistment, they selected me for a commissioning program. And they sent me to get my undergraduate degree at Oregon State University. I went up, To Oregon, I got a couple of degrees in history. And when I was finished with my degrees, I was commissioned a ground officer in the Marine Corps and then sent to the basic school where every Marine officer has to go for six months to learn about being a young Marine officer. And while I was there, I was selected for an aviation contract and sent to flight school. I did pretty well in flight school, and it ended up uh, being winged an F-18 weapons systems officer, so a backseater in the F-18 on the West Coast. I joined my first squadron and immediately deployed to uh, Kuwait to do Operation Southern Watch. And I was actually overhead Iraq when OIF kicked off. Um, so I participated in OIF-1, pushed through uh, the country and then uh, actually ended up deploying back to Iraq a, a couple more times in the F-18 and after an extended and successful tour in the F-18 with multiple squadrons, I actually left the Hornet community. And became a plank holder or an original member with uh, marine special operations command so when they were starting the special operations arm for the marine corps i got to play a part in that at the ground level on the west coast with what was marine special operations battalion which is now marine raider battalion i went over there as an aviation specialist um, you know close air support or jtac jtac constructor FAC, things like that and Ended up with the first Marine Special Operations Company, Delta, and deployed with them. I like to call them Smurf Ninjas. They're some impressive folks. Uh, So ran around the world doing some impressive things with those guys. And then after that tour, actually, the Marine Corps invested in me again. Sent me back to college. I got a master's in higher education leadership. And, you know, I had been deploying for a while with the Marine Corps. And when I was going to work on that master's, I really was thinking you know, this is going to be a nice break after deployment, after deployment, after deployment, and I'm going to get a degree, but I really wasn't thinking about it that much. I just needed, I felt like I needed some time off and it was going to be a nice break. Well, that lasted for about three weeks before I kind of looked around and thought, I have to figure out a way I'm going to, how I'm going to have an impact around me. And there was a big influx of military into higher education. So I started focusing my research on what institutions of higher education were doing for the military on their campuses wrote a thesis around it that was used to start up some programs around the country on different campuses but i still had to pay back to the marine corps so they sent me to the east coast and my twilight tour i ran a schoolhouse out on the east coast called the marine corps training the trainer school and that took me until 2014 and i retired in 2014 and became a veteran of the marine corps i started working in higher education I was immediately hired by um, San Diego State. And then in parallel to that, I started working on a doctorate where I, again, started focusing my research on military and higher education, this time accessing higher education and the influences on those decision making. And I was really interested in why so many veterans or active duty members were finding themselves on campuses that were underperforming and failing in the product that they were producing. And why would they weren't on some of the best campuses or why more of them weren't on some of the best campuses in the nation and figuring out ways of influencing that. And I worked in higher education at San Diego State and the University of San Diego while I was doing that. I also was a senior director for the Travis Mannion Foundation, uh, running the western side of the United States uh, for them. And when in 2019, I finished my doctorate. I was running one of the biggest military programs in the nation at San Diego State University. And Project Recover invited me to be the president and CEO of the organization. Now, I do have to correct: I wasn't, I'm not, not the founder of the organization, but I have been with it for 16 years. And I actually started being a member of the organization in 2004. I met Pat Scannon, who was the founder. Him and I became friends. He invited me to be in the organization. Became a member. One of my first missions kind of grew in the organization, ended up on the board. And then last year they invited me to take on this role. So long answer, so, but there's my no, story. No, I
0: love it. I love <laughs> it, Derek. And so, But one of the things that stood out to me in you sharing just kind of the the high level perspective of your story is going back to when you were getting your masters you mm-hmm. said um 3 weeks in you already kind of looked around you and was trying to figure out how to find a way to make an impact and i find that especially working within um i mean I would say a majority of people, a majority of service members, but especially within special ops, um, there is this need to do something significant, need to do something that's going to make a huge impact. I would say for most families in the military, or even in the first responder space, it's about doing something that matters and making an impact in your community. But I find, I find in that special ops niche, it's like, how do I, strive for the best, be the best, perform the best, look for other people to um, have access to the best. And that sounds like that's some of the things that you were seeing even on the campuses of what are our veterans getting access to and are they getting access to the best?
1: Yeah. you know, Early on, and I I can't remember when it became a conscious thought to me, but I kind of made this personal mission statement and that was to strive to have a positive impact on as many people as I can throughout my lifetime. And that could be in any capacity. And so after doing that, and then even later in my life, I really took another step back and said, okay, I have to examine what's what's my sphere of influence and where does my voice carry weight? Where Where can I have an impact? And I don't know if that was from working with so many incredible people, whether it was a ready room in a fighter squadron or a team room in a special operations unit, you know, I was, I was blessed to be surrounded by some of the most impressive people in the world. And, you know, some of those traits probably rubbed off on me, but it was definitely a conscious effort that made me look around me to determine how I could have an impact. And, and, you know, that has been the higher education space. Um, and today, and over the last 16 years, it's been the MIA or the missing in action community and the the gold star and missing in action families. And it also includes transitioning military and working with uh, military members and their family members that are looking at what's going to happen in the next phase of their life or how they're going to have an impact on in the next phase of their life. But yeah, it, it definitely, I've been conscious about it and it's def it's, it's kind of laid this path out before me and I, and I pay attention to it on a regular basis because it is important to me to, to have an expanding sphere of influence. And so I look for ways of having a a positive impact on the circles around me. And, and when I see them, I, I try and take advantage of it.
0: So there's so much that I want to cover with you in, in this episode, but I really want to have you maybe unpack for just a minute. What was the significance of you having or recognizing the sphere of influence that you had available to you? Like, what was that step, right? Of Because it is a step. It's this place where you go, okay, I want to have a positive impact, but where do I best have that impact? Yeah, I think that's a question that a lot of people struggle with or don't think about is your current sphere of influence. So what do you mean by that? And how significant was that step for you?
1: Yeah. So, well, when I think about my own personal story, I think about the 18-year-old that I just told you about. And my sphere of influence was me, you know? And Mm -hmm. and barely that, like I I was a disaster and now it's growing to, to what it is. And and it's, uh, to me, sometimes I think it's incredible when I sit back and think about it. I mean, there's, it expands the world in many capacities, but yeah, sphere of influence is a, a term that I use. And I think I, I got that from my higher education background, but, you know, I look at where can I have a positive impact? And that can be in multiple ways, you know, that can be just in your actions every day, but it can also be in your interactions every day. So where does your voice carry weight? What expertise do you bring to a conversation or an opportunity? Where do you have credibility? Or where can I build those things? How can I build my voice in an area that I might care about? Or where can I build credibility to influence an area that I care about? And so one, there's an assessment part of that. And then there's a, um, well, there's assessment on both sides, assessing yourself, but then assessing the things that you might care about. And then where is the overlap between those? So I have power in my vo- voice in this area and my capabilities in this area, and I care about that area. So I'm going to start investing energy in that. And that's something that I've done in it. And it's changed throughout my life. You know, when I was in the military, it was kind of provided to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But then that allowed, as more and more of that responsibility and more and more of that influence was provided to me, I wanted to take advantage of it and I wanted to grow it and I wanted to make sure it was happening in a positive way. Now, when you leave the military, it's not provided for you anymore. And now you have this opportunity, but it's in the self-efficacy realm, right? So now I'm making a decision on where I want to focus my influence. And then I have to really assess where my voice is going to carry weight and nobody else is providing that for me. And then it comes with a decision. And that decision can be super, super scary because it could be you might fall on your face and fail. And that's not an opportunity in the military, but it's an opportunity outside of the military. And one thing that I've noticed is a lot that when people harness the power of their newfound self-efficacy and they move beyond the fear of failure, that they really find an opportunity to create impact.
0: So, so good. And I I hope those of you who are listening, who are maybe asking some of your, those questions in your life right now, you almost need to kind of rewind and listen to all of that again, because you, (laughs) Derek presented some great questions that I think you could sit down with a piece of paper, journal out some of those answers to the questions that he presented and, um, and really start to look at where is the sphere of influence that you have in your own life and what are you passionate about? And also, Um, how to get that direction and motivation that you need. So Derek, you talked about going through this transition yourself, ETSing out, becoming that veteran. Would you mind sharing what I know you kind of led into project recover and I want us to talk about that, but there's like this little moment that I think a lot of people might be wondering about was what was that transition for you? Like going from active duty to veteran lifestyle.
1: Yeah, I do want to, just touch on one thing about
0: this
1: piece that I think too many people make a mistake on. And then I happily share that answer to your question. So what I see a lot of folks um, when they, when they leave the service is they want that sphere of influence uh, to be massive. They want it. They want to put a flag on top Mm -hmm. of a mountain. I'm going to cure cancer. Right. And then they fall short in, in some way. And it's okay to have a massive goal like that. But the sphere of influence doesn't need to be a million people. It could be three people around you that you care about. It could be your kid's softball team. It could be anything. Um, It doesn't need to be big, but it needs to be impactful. So it could be, yeah, a small group of kids in your neighborhood. It could be your neighborhood community. It could be your church. It could be anything. It doesn't need to be this massive piece. It could be one person. It could be that one person that you you have the capability to mentor, and then you're bringing a better outcome to them, which, of course, is going to result in a better outcome to you because that's, that's good for your own mental health, your own stability, your own self-worth, things like that. It doesn't need to be massive. But if you start with that one person, I think that's when it grows to the 3, to the 10, to the 100,000 million Things like that. But too often, I see people strive for this massive goal, and maybe they trip up early on and then it seems unattainable, and they just turn around instead of focusing on the things directly around them when they start. So I think that's an important point for me. And I just want to. No, share I, that.
0: I think it's important too. In fact, I think one of the most humbling moments for me was. Years ago, when I did want to do something really big, and it just wasn't time for me to do anything that big other than what was right in front of me, but I I wanted that and there's a lot of reasons we could get into why we strive for that instead of what's right in front of us. But one of the most painful, most humbling moments that I needed in my life at the time was me offering to help an entity. Like, what could I do? How could I get involved? How can I how can I help you succeed? I was so excited and energetic about it. And I remember this person looking at me and saying, you need to go back and do... Wh- they used that phrase that we all hate in the military, but they said, bloom where you're planted, go back to the sphere of influence that you currently have and do well with the influence that you already have. And your circle will naturally expand as you're responsible with what you've been given. Yeah. And at the time I was devastated because I wanted to do this thing. I wanted to be part of this other thing, but what it reminded me was if I would have had that big thing then, I would have done terrible with what was right in front of me. And I really needed to go home and do well with my family. I needed to do well with my neighborhood. I needed to do well with what was right in front of me. So I absolutely agree with what you said.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's easy to kind of, you know, what is it, see the forest for the trees or miss the forest mm-hmm. for the trees or something like that. Mm-hmm. Is it, you're missing oh, I'm the terrible
0: picture. with metaphors. So I'm not yeah, going to help you with
1: that. Right in front of you, um, that you can have an influence. And sometimes, You know, especially for your podcast, sometimes it's your family. Your family needs your love and attention right now, and you're 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 distracted by something beyond that. And and I truly believe if you you know you have an impact on a few people around you, that instantly lends to your credibility because those are the people that are going to tell they're they're going to tell your story to somebody else, and they might introduce you to somebody else, and then you know that gets into the kind of the network piece and how that network grows. But I think it's so important to just just start where you're at and focus on the, the things immediately around you that, that you care about and that you can have an impact on, and then focus your energy there. It doesn't, but that's difficult if you if you had <laughs> you're a battalion commander or a battalion sergeant major or something like that, and you had, you know, a thousand people that you're responsible for. And now it seems because you're comparing them, which isn't the right thing to do, that it's somehow less, but it's not, it's not less at all. It's just different.
0: So, so good. So I think the next thing that you're going to share is your transition. Yeah. Right. And Gosh. then how that led you to Project Recover?
1: Yeah. Well, I, the interesting thing was, is my transition was made so much better because I was already a part of Project Recover. So I became a, a involved in with Project Recover in 2004, and I didn't retire from the Marine Corps until 10 years later. And, you know, over and over, and I've seen it uh, all the time, and it's very, very true, is this perception of loss of purpose when you transition out of the military, you're kind of this loss of your worth, or things like that. It's a common piece you're exploring, whatever those new identities might be for you, or you have the opportunity to explore those, those new identities, creating new relationships, healthy relationships, hopefully. Um, But for me when I left the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps was gone. I put, put, it wasn't gone, but my my active role within it was gone. But my purpose didn't drop off at all because I was already working with an organization that was having an impact uh, on things that I cared about. And so I just continued to put my efforts into Project Recover and I, I never saw that drop off in purpose. And it also allowed me to continue to expand those other spheres that we discussed earlier in other areas. Like, I really built out my relationships in um, the higher education community and credibility within that community. I continued to develop myself uh, as I continued my education and then um, built up. Uh, a reputation and an ability to have an impact really in the community around me at the time it was in San Diego and now it's it's in Bend, Oregon. But those things became important to me and I, they really solidified themselves as important factors in, in my everyday life.
0: Are you hearing something
1: today that's really hitting home? Take your personal growth to the next level by joining the LifeGiver Facebook group. Simply head over to the Facebook page Corey Weathers slash life giver and join the group with other service couples for support and deeper discussions on each episode. Want even more subscribe to the life giver newsletter for practical tips from each episode and exclusive discounts on sessions with Corey.
0: So Derek, one of the things that I love is the fact that you did have that sense of purpose that you were able to come right into an organization that you already felt was meaningful. And to use your word again, it really was a place where you felt like you were having a significant impact. Right. And so I feel like that's kind of a theme of what we're talking about here is Um, where do we feel like we have an impact, whether it's in our home or whether it's in our involvement in these other ways. And I think it's also about teaming up with other like-minded people that are also making a similar impact. And so it sounds like you had that already. So why don't we just take an opportunity to talk a little bit about Project Recover. It's a fascinating thing that you guys are doing. So share a little bit about the organization and, um, what you're doing to make a difference.
1: Yeah, so the organization has been around in some capacity for now more than a quarter century. But the the mission is is we search for, locate Americans missing in action with the intention of bringing them home and returning them to their families and loved ones. And that starts with a lot of research, uh, you know, getting into the archives and things like that. And we gather a lot of information and then we make decisions on executing missions in the field and searching for. Uh, American's missing, and that could be in the waters around the world, or it can be in jungles. And we use n- a number of protocols to search those locations. And typically, we search for aviation sites because it's a lot easier to find an aircraft than it is to find a person that might have been missing for 75 years. But and then the records are very, very well kept um, in relationship to those aircraft. So if we locate an aircraft, we can determine what type of aircraft it is, exactly which aircraft it is, and at that point we know who's associated with it. If it's associated with missing people, we'll document those sites. We'll turn those sites over to the Department of Defense. Um, A recovery mission will be executed. The remains will be recovered, repatriated back to the United States, identified, and then returned to their families, ultimately. Uh, We don't only search for um, missing aircrew. We are in the process of searching for some prisoners of war that were captured and ultimately executed. Uh, but it's, it's incredibly impactful work. Um, sometimes it takes a really, really long time uh, to find some of these sites, but uh, you know, when somebody's returned to their, their families, it has an absolutely indescribable impact. And I get asked every once in a while, you know, cause we do a lot of searching for, World War II MIAs that, you know, it's been over seven decades, do families really care? And the truth is, is they absolutely care. And most of the time, these missing service members have taken on some sort of mythical status in the families' uh, stories have been made up for them. they have shrines in their homes. And many times they have no idea that we're actually looking for their loved one until they're notified that um, mm-hmm. their loved one's been found. And I've got to witness Uh, the repatriation, the memorialization, and the celebration of, of these MIAs when they are returned to their families. And I cannot properly put it into words, but the impact is incredible. And it goes from the individual all the way to the national level and in multiple ways. So you have an individual that was lost. Obviously, they were impacted. And their friends, colleagues, other service members around them were impacted. And of course, their their family is left with these questions about what happened to them and and they hold on to that and the grieving process is actually interrupted with the mm-hmm. with those families and because of our culture and tradition of bringing remains home and and memorializing them appropriately and that is actually passed from generation to generation it doesn't go away and so um, I'm sorry,
0: they, Derek, what would you say is passed from generation to generation? The grief. Yes. Uh,
1: and can you, questions.
0: can you unpack that just a little bit? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, you know, let's use the world war II at, missing as an example, cause that's primarily the, the ones that we search for. Um, you know, it's been seven to eight decades, depending on what period of the war somebody might've been lost. Many times the, the people that actually knew that person are no longer around. So there might not be any firsthand counts or firsthand memories of that individual. However, the rest of the family and the descendants from that family member know about that person, and they hold on to those same questions. And sometimes it's not a conscious grieving process, but it's there. Um, And uh, and I'll use a perfect example, and it's not—I mean, it's—and it's been replicated so many times in our interactions. So. One of the MIAs that we returned in 2018 was a gentleman named Walter Mintus, and he was returned to Portage, Pennsylvania. And um, he had taken on this mythical status, and they referred to him as Uncle Bert. And there was a military tradition in their family since then. And everybody that joined the military, and many of them were at the memorial, um, and they shared their own personal stories with us, they said you know when we made the decision to join the military we were sat down by the other family members and we were told this is the legacy of uncle bert and what you are tasked with living up to and this so uncle bert was a myth he was mm. uh, you know he, it, he was this this myth that they had to live up to and now he's brought home and he becomes real and all the stories are clarified There's the questions go away because now there's answers and he becomes a real person and not just as important to those family members, but real, real in so many ways. And, and it's, it's this emotional release that happens across the family and the community, uh, the people on the tangents that are connected to them that get to grieve, but also celebrate uh, the the return of this lost MIA. And one thing that's unreal about this process is is the service members gave their life and sacrificed during, during the war. And that was incredible at that moment. And we get to live the luxury of the lives that we have today because of that. But now their sacrifice has this second wave of impact. So now they're brought home and these communities come together and unite over this celebration and memorial. And healing occurs on the collective level as well as the family and individual level all the way up to the national level because we have moved away from this acknowledgement that we have to heal from our participation in war as a collective, especially very common today because we have a very small military that we um, use to fight our conflicts. And so most of our citizens are impacted by war. But the truth is, is we participate in war as a collective and we expect the healing of war to uh, occur at the individual level by those Mm -hmm. that participate in it directly. And so one of those uh, wounds is we make a promise to our military members that if you wear our nation's cloth, we will do everything in our power to return you should you fall in combat. And sometimes that promise isn't kept because war is chaos in the context of it doesn't allow for those remains to be returned. And there's 82,000 Americans still missing. And so in in many ways, that promise hasn't been kept to those 82,000 service members and the millions of family members that are associated Mm -hmm. with them. So when you bring someone home, you're keeping that promise. And our nation gets to hold on to another level of credibility as a collective, and we get to heal as a collective through our participation in this conflict. And, you know, it's eight, seven to eight decades later that we were participating in World War II, but these wounds are still there. And obviously there's still plenty of wounds from our ongoing conflicts today.
0: So, so amazing. I could go down like so many different rabbit holes with what you're saying. One of the things that's standing out to me is when you talked about this complicated grief that's passed down from generations, you know, we see on the psychology side, we see when we do genograms of families that um, this really is true, that you can pass down anything. We are pretty much all familiar with, let's say alcoholism and having a predisposition for alcoholism if it's in your in your family line. And a lot of people are familiar with that. But there's also other medical issues that can be passed down through generations. There are amazing stories of even um, relationship dynamics that are passed down through a family line. Um, I mean, one example is when I was mapping out my own family's genogram back when I was in getting my master's degree as part of a project, I was talking to my dad and it turns out that every male on his side had a heart attack around 65. And we didn't know that until we went back and traced it all. And here he was at 60 having this free-floating anxiety. And it was like his body knew something that his brain had not caught up to. And so we even see psychological kind of issues being passed down from generation to generation. So when you talk about grief is something that can be passed down, that there is this story, this significant person that's just off the map, right? It's just off the genogram map. Um, And like you're saying, they become this myth. They become just a question mark on the map. Mm -hmm. And that impacts generations of what does it mean to serve? It means how do we have closure? Um, What is um, How do we feel about the country's willingness to fulfill the promise that they held? And I just think it's really incredible. Um, And I don't want it to pass by listeners to hear how incredible it is to have an organization that is helping fulfill that promise and heal and provide that closure to so many families.
1: Yeah. And it it might seem like a cliche. I mean when we hear about World War II, you know, they they fought the war, they came back, they didn't talk about it. And the, the cliche piece in many MIA families is there may have been a spouse at home and some children and this person was lost. And she just didn't talk about it. And we've mm-hmm. talked to many, many children of MIAs and they shared the, the story of, well, mom just didn't talk about dad. And, you know, and then she went to her grave maybe without ever discussing that. And now this occurs. obviously those children are holding on to that. Mm-hmm. And now remains our return. And it's like, holy smokes. Okay. These are the conversations that we wanted to have or that unfortunately we couldn't have, or this is the stories that these are the stories that were floating around and it turns out they weren't true. The truth is X, Y, and Z. And we, we noticed that many times that in replacing the grieving process, you know, stories are made up about what happened to this person, sometimes mm-hmm. positive, sometimes not positive. Um, you know, and those are yeah. Okay. Yeah. The person was rescued by natives and are, and uh, they have amnesia and they have another life somewhere and things like that. Well, that's not necessarily healthy for a family to hold on to. And now they're kind of dealing with, instead of a loss, it's more of an abandonment type of thing. Mm-hmm. Or can be. And now it's like, no, this person didn't abandon you. They were lost, unfortunately. And the, this is the truth now. And they can put all those stories away and they know the truth.
0: Isn't it amazing what our imaginations do and how sometimes the truth is so much more simple than our imaginations want to make it out to be?
1: Yes, it is. It's unreal.
0: (laughs) It's, you know, but we do what we have to do when we need closure, when we don't understand what's happened, we don't understand how it could have happened or, you know, and part of closure, especially when you've lost somebody to death, Part of closure is wanting to know what, what that person's experience was, what did they go through, did they struggle, just so many questions. And when you don't have those answers, you your brain either makes up answers that make sense to you, because surely they wouldn't have abandoned me, right? Or maybe they did. It's hard to know. And so the grief and the, um, there's just such an immense amount of emotions that I imagine those spouses who didn't know where their service member went, you, you know, just so many emotions that they might've taken to the grave.
1: Well, I, I mean, I think about it with my own personal story, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my mom unexpectedly passed away when I was 13. Mm -hmm. She's there, seems healthy one day and then gone the next. And so it was a chaotic time. And I, and I, even though I was there, I knew what happened and, and stuff, even in my mind, you know, Closer to that time afterwards, I was like, is this real? Is, is she actually gone? Did this actually happen? Did it, it's something, you know, you start making up these stories because one, it's a tragedy and mm-hmm. you're trying to work your way through it. But I mean, I knew what happened and I, and I was even making up stories in my mind when my mom passed.
0: It is amazing. But I think it's just part of our coping skills because we're in so much pain,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? And so... You know, one of the things that I ask a lot of individuals who are going through something extremely difficult or tragic um, is part of the healing process is to... Well, number one, feel the feelings instead of avoid them, which is, you know, a whole topic on grief that we could have of just how do you sit in that pocket of grief and allow yourself to celebrate the life that you got to be a part of? But number two, it's about how do I then start to move forward, even though grief is going to come over me like waves hitting a toddler, right? It doesn't just stop. All of a sudden, but at some point in the healing process, I believe you have to get to a place if you're going to get to a place of what I would call healing, which doesn't mean the pain goes away entirely and that you forget things, but that we are um, doing much better is when you can, like you said, find a way to create significant impact and bring purpose out of that pain, right? Yeah. So when you can experience, because life is is going to happen, it's going to have suffering, it's going to have difficulty, we can't escape that. Things are going to happen that are painful. And um, it doesn't mean that we're living our worst life. It just means we have opportunities to bring purpose out of that pain. And the best form of healing is when you can take that pain and help someone else. Yeah. So I think it's an incredible story for you to have experienced that pain so long ago and then to bring these people home to these families to me I see that connection it's just kind of this purpose out of I lost someone in my life and now I get to be a part that brings someone home I get to find them
1: yeah it's um you know sometimes i I'm <laughs> amazed that I've somehow found myself in this this position and you know, kind of going back to our earlier discussion, uh, when we started, when I when I started with this organization, I had no idea how I might be able to have an impact on returning Americans Missing in Action, but it seemed like the right thing to do uh, because it, it aligned with my values. And then I met this person that provided me an opportunity to contribute. And I didn't know how I was going to contribute, but I just agreed that I would. And it, does that mean just going and Hiking through the jungle and using my eyeballs in in some sort of capacity, and that's kind of the way I thought it was at the beginning. And and since then, it's grown to be a lot more than that. You know, along the way, obviously I learned a lot. I, I continue to learn. Uh, surrounded myself with more incredible people that come with a plethora of capabilities that allow us to successfully accomplish this mission. And then it's just grown from then. And but when when I started. You know, it it seemed like a dream that I would be able to participate or support or somehow contribute to finding somebody that's been missing for multiple decades and then assist with them being returned to their loved ones. And yeah, it's just, but here we are. And you know it, it is a little bit of a fairy tale, and I don't think I mentioned this, but the the first the first mission that I ever went on was in Palau, and the first MIA that I was a part of locating was on my first mission, and he was a member of my squadron.
0: No, really. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I started my Marine Corps career. Uh, excuse me, not my Marine Corps career, but my aviation career in. VMFA 121, which is still around today, and they flew in World War II, and believe it or not, I was at their World War II reunion when I met the founder Pat Scanon, and a 121 Marine was the first MIA I was a part of locating.
0: That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, sorry, I just was like sitting <laughs> in that for a second.
1: <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I I still get chills when I think about it, and I remember going into that mission. You know, he was. He was on the list, and I just thought, wouldn't it be incredible if somehow we located this person, and and it and it occurred. I don't know what was the type of intervention that was? But uh, I don't believe in coincidences anymore.
0: No, I don't it. either. And um, and I, I'm gonna just go out on a limb here because I f- I feel like sometimes God allows events in our life to spiral back around, to like loop back around. And I don't know how to explain it other than I sometimes see, this is going to sound really crazy, but sometimes I see time not so much like a linear line, but more like a coil, like a spiral. And I think that we can sometimes find ourselves looping back around on themes that we thought we had already addressed or looping back around on our own story, right? Or we're given an opportunity to rewrite the story or to complete the story or get closure to that story. And, and God is so good to just kind of loop things. And sometimes in the most unexpected ways, um, that brings that closure to our life. And so I don't know, that just sounds like one of those to me. And I think it's amazing.
1: No, I think if you talk, to the the members of our organization that had been doing this for a while we truly believe that the people that we are looking for participate in our in our searches somehow they provide information to us cuz information comes to us in these completely unpredictable unprecedented ways and it results in finding somebody that's missing and you might say well that was luck but like i said i don't i don't believe in coincidences there's an influence on this for sure.
0: So amazing. Now I know that a lot of people are picturing, like you said, you guys, you know, walking through the jungle and scuba diving, and I'm sure you guys are doing some of that, but from what I understand, um, project recover has been able to make some really amazing advancements. And I want to make sure we give time to, for you to describe a little bit of how that new technology has helped.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which which also amazes me that I'm a part of this organization because we were so grassroots when I started, and it was, you know, a small grassroots group of people that were coming together, paying their own ways, and we would do one mission a year to Palau in the South Pacific. It's an island nation where some significant fighting took place during World War II, and there was losses both in the jungle and in the water. And back then, we would comb the archives for information. We would go with a pretty good plan. And that, of course, would change once we found ourselves in, in Palau. But we would comb the jungles there looking for sites and we would get online and just do kind of traditional scuba diving grid patterns on the bottom of the ocean floor and certain areas where we thought aircraft were found and we were successful. But then fast forward to 2012, we were in Palau and our colleagues from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the University of Delaware were in Palau doing some oceanography work and they were utilizing automated underwater vehicles to search the ocean floors for all sorts of different things. And we met them um, through a mutual friend and, you know, we asked them what they were doing. They asked what we were doing and quickly we realized like there's some overlap in our capabilities here and our mission, and we could utilize their automated underwater vehicles to scan the ocean floor a lot faster. And um, we had a real-world mission that they could use to develop their technologies to assist us with. And so how these robots work is they look like kind of like a torpedo and um, they're self-propelling. You program them. And they'll go out into the ocean and you let them go, and they can grid out a pattern and they'll use side scan sonar to use sound to map the the bottom of the ocean floor. And then we can sit and look on a computer at what the the imagery that comes back from that. And it's really just using shadows. So the sound is reflected back, it creates shadows, and they turn that into an image. And we can look at things on the ocean floor, and it does take a a trained eye and determine that looks like it's man-made and maybe it looks like an airplane. Usually we're not that lucky, although although that has happened. There's a boat or a sunken ship or that's a coral head that could be man-made. And so from there, we could dive point targets or points of interest instead of gridding via scuba. And that saved us time. It was a lot safer um, if it's a deeper site. They have remote-operated vehicles that you can use to put the robot down to search the ocean floor or that point if it's, a, if it's deep, and that allowed us to just rocket into the future in our capabilities, and then they came on as formal partners of ours. They are part of Project Recover. We continue to work with them, but that added to our success, and that added to the visibility, and it brought visibility and also people that have supported the mission, so Um, funds have come in to support our work that allows us to do more and more work. And then we moved from just working in Palau to now we have a worldwide mission. We've been to 18 countries around the world and it's just scaled our efforts to a level that, you know, 10 years ago we couldn't have fathomed.
0: It's pretty incredible what you guys are doing. Um, And I know those that are listening, just think, I'm sure they think it's fascinating too. Why don't we take the time in the, in the little bit that we have left to share a little bit about either how people can get involved if it's something that they're interested in getting involved in, or if they have a passion to just even help from a distance um, bring this closure to more families and join your story in that? Um, where can people find more information about what you guys are doing?
1: Yeah, so the easiest way is through our website, projectrecover.org. There's ways of contacting us through the website. There's multiple reasons that people reach out to us. Sometimes they want to support the mission. They want to be a member of the organization. They ha- they come with capabilities that can expand ours, and we want to hear from them. But we also want to hear from MIA families. We want to know the information that they have on their loved one, and we'll add that to our database. And if we have the capability, you know, we'll execute a mission in searching for them. Sometimes they have that little piece of information um, that we might be looking for that is going to make it possible for us to execute a mission. And, and so we want to hear from them. And if we have information related to their loved one, we'll, we'll share that with those family members. Uh, we have a growing database, um, but we're, we want to hear from MIA families. And of course, we want to hear from people that want to participate in the mission and come with the capability to do so.
0: Derek, thank you so much for um, sharing your story as personal as it was um, for continuing to make such an incredible impact in your community for really bridging the divide is how I see it, right? You, you served all of these years in the Marines. Um, you're still serving um, our service members and their families, but also getting to play a part in bridging that divide with those civilian family members that were impacted by the loss of a loved one. And I think that that's a really cool thing that you get to be a part of. Um, we hear too often about the divide and there's lots of opportunities I think we have to actually close that and bridge it. And so, so it's a really interesting, um, beautiful example of how to close that divide by addressing one of humanity's greatest needs, which is foreclosure and to bring um, resolution to grief. And I think that's amazing. So Derek, thank you so much for your time. And I appreciate it so much.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Life Giver podcast. If you're enjoying these episodes, please share the podcast with other service couples that may benefit from the show. If you're feeling especially grateful, head on over to patreon.com forward slash LifeGiver or find the link in today's show notes where for just a couple of dollars, you can help breathe life into more service families. If you'd like more information about me or Life Giver, head on over to coryweathers.com or life-giver.org.